You're listening to Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. So this is what happened a couple of weeks ago. I was sitting in the member's lounge of a local club, and my Italian economist friend Pietro Ventani comes up to me, sits down, and pushes a piece of paper across the table. He says, I've been thinking about things. There's more to it. What he's referring to is our first conversation that resulted in our first Capitalism's Rite of Passage episode. It came out on April 2nd and stirred up something of a debate. I looked down at the paper, unfolded it, and there, printed in black and white, were four statements, all carefully bulleted. Each paragraph had its own heading. There was the problem, followed by root causes. Then came what governments are doing to fix the problem. And finally, what governments should do to fix the problem. We had a coffee, talked it over, then retreated to a corner of the club to have the conversation you're about to hear. We got straight to the point, and if I'm not mistaken, we address in its entirety the problem with current-day capitalism. I'm joking, of course, but I have to say it was a pretty tight and focused conversation. You be the judge. To latch on to where we're going with this discussion, it's not essential, but you might want to first listen to part one. Your call. Either way, I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. But before we get into it, a quick word about our sponsor, Quilt AI, a mission-first technology company that helps large organizations use the internet more purposefully. It's looking to reverse fractures in society and generate empathy while helping organizations understand their customers and beneficiaries much better. They give time and money to causes they care about and in service to people and planet. Inside Asia is pleased to be associated with Quilt AI. For more information, do check them out at quilt.ai. Now, here's my conversation with Pietro. Pietro, we're back. Hey, hey. Steve. Yeah. How are you? Very well. Good to see you. Yeah. We've, we got a, we, you know, we said in our last uh, conversation, there's more to discuss. And boy, was there. And you came firing back with all kinds of interesting thoughts. And I, I thought we, you know, for the interest of the listeners, we could just recap a little bit about the future of capitalism, um, some of the challenges we're facing, and then, you know, what the future looks like. Would, would you mind just, you know, you know, just because I think, I think what you had in mind was really quite helpful. Would you mind just laying it out for us one more time, you know, how you think we arrived in this moment and what we need to do going forward. Give it a go. So the, I think there are two really major issues that are staring, at, staring us in the face in the very immediate time. And they are debt, which has reached uh, an absolutely unsustainable level. And that is essentially stifling the ability of the economy to, to grow, to, to reach escape velocity. Uh, and then the second issue, which is also linked to debt, uh, in, a, in, a, in a fairly interesting way, is income inequality. I think as a society, we really need to start uh, figuring out how to address these issues because uh, the unintended consequences of these two issues in the, in, the, in the next few years may lead us down the path mm. that I think will be is quite, quite scary and, and, and dystopian. And, and you're concerned that lots of conversations are being had, but in very disjointed ways, and the time has come for us to really organize our thinking and be a little clearer and a little more focused in order to action some of these challenges. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. I think as a society, unless we have, obviously, as always, when a problem needs to be solved, you have to get to the root cause, you have to define it, you have to identify it. And you have to get to the root causes of this problem, and then you can start to look at possible solutions. Mm. If we don't do that, we, we we're just going to be victims of uh, of the of time, essentially. Okay. So debt. Let's talk about debt. 
how how big is the problem and and is there any turning point or do you believe we've gone past the tipping point so essentially there is plenty of research uh, both on a historical basis and and more recent basis that shows that when debt in a society reaches a certain level uh, essentially becomes start to become a, a gravely deflationary in fact is often used the term zombifies the economy, zombifies companies, zombifies sectors, and essentially uh, uh, sclerotize the, the ability of society to, uh, to grow and react to, uh, to, to change, essentially. So that, on, an, on a very basic level, there is, and again, there is plenty of academic work, but when that to GDP start to exceed 90 to 100 percent, uh, that is when we start to see this really very, um, uh, you know, second, uh, you know, uh, unsavory and, and negative uh, uh, collateral effects to society and economic growth. And, and what's the correlation between debt and income inequality? Yes. So the essentially debt is a by as being a byproduct of uh, massively stimulating uh, monetary policies. And uh, this monetary policies in a very basic level have pushed interest rates to uh, historically uh, unprecedented low levels. When interest rates, essentially interest rates is the price, is the price of money and it's the price of risk. So when, when interest rates are extremely low, you get a whole slew of unintended consequences, one of which that we are very familiar and has been proven beyond any doubt, is essentially what is called asset price inflation, meaning that the price of assets, whether they are financial assets, you know, property or anything else pretty much, uh, uh, rise on a dramatic level. So what happens is that society essentially is divided into two. The people who have assets who become richer and richer, and the people who don't have assets who become poorer and poorer. Um, so income inequality is, is a direct uh, byproduct. And again, this is very little contention around this. There is plenty of evidence and, and, and study and research. Income inequality is a indirect consequence of monetary policies over the last, uh, you know, 15 to 20 years. And, and of course, this has political ramifications. And, and when that happens, governments get involved. So the way governments are getting involved is driving up debt in order to pay out to those who don't have or build infrastructure or subsidize, whatever the case may be. So in fact, you're exacerbating the problem. Is that correct? Absolutely. That's to me, perhaps, is the single most concerning issue is that or, or now we, we have seen now for, you know, the best part of the last two decades, the problem of debt is addressed with more debt, which obviously not only on a very basic logical level doesn't work, but also, as you pointed out, makes the problem exponentially worse. Um, so we now, obviously, obviously, COVID has been has been a bit of a watershed, but essentially COVID has massive, massively accelerated the accumulation and the creation of that. Uh, now, of course, uh, there is, uh, um, you know, a whole school of thought that essentially sees government intervening into the economy more and more, obviously on a debt financing basis, uh, on, a, on a, also on a redistributing sort of redistribution sort of type of uh, function, which is not necessarily wrong. The problem is that obviously, again, it's, it's driven by yet more debt. Mm. Uh, we can talk about redistribution on a, on a you know, in, a, in, a, in, in an abstract, but obviously when the redistribution essentially means that there is more debt, which obviously has also a sort of adverse effect on the value of the currency, and that that is used basically as a, 
as a as a as a redistributive mm. uh, tool that creates a whole uh, sort of a, a series of unintended uh, and and sort of dystopian second-order consequences. And, and and of course, this is a situation of government's own making across the world, whether or not you're a communist or a democracy or the, the it, it, it's irregardless of the political system. The elites have been favored by government, and now you've got a situation where um, they encourage that for for four or five decades um, to the point where corporations simply were working the system uh, or state-owned organizations would be the same. They had privilege. They had rights and access. Um, And now you have to undo that. And so the money in politics, whether, you know, legitimate or illegitimate, has driven the system to the point of the brink, to, to, to to the brink is my understanding. What do we do next? In other words, what is, if it's not debt, what is the best thing a government could do to get us past this? Well, obviously, now the situation has reached a, a level, uh, as, I, as I think I may have mentioned last time, the debt at the end of 2020 was uh, $281 trillion, which is about 360% of global GDP. Uh, so we, we, are, we are reached a, you know, a point where, where obviously solution is starting to get very, very difficult. But, but I think one way to start to look at it is to start... Uh, to, to go back to a system or at least to start to, um, you know, uh, um, incentivize, stimulate a system where there is actually more competition. Because the biggest issue that I think most people uh, don't really see is that uh, the, 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 the problems that we are facing are actually the byproduct of a lack of competition, a lack of market. So these policies essentially has been, have been sucking out competition out of the market, out of the out of the system, you know. For example, there is plenty of evidence showing that low interest rates actually favor the formation of monopolies. So, helping starting to really, uh, uh, you know, redress the balance and starting to create a more, uh, you know, playing field uh, and with a more sort of competitive economic environment, I think it will it will be a good place to start. And also, of course, it's about efficiencies, driving efficiencies, which you get from economies of scale, which is why, you know, large organizations like Amazon and Walmart and others have risen to the fore. Um, but you're saying it's time to break that back down. So there's one approach, which was regulatory, antitrust laws, breaking them up and, and restoring maybe a healthier and a larger number of competitors. But then there's also an opportunity that exists with technology and blockchain. Where could we go from here? And now we've come full circle in, one, in, in nine quick minutes of recapping our last conversation. And now I want to move into that very provocative notion that you left us with of, you know, decentralizing. And in order to decentralize at, on a global basis without the undue participation or interference of government, what is required? I think the if you look at the history of our species on a very basic level, you can see that technology is always the the key enabling factor. And uh, once again, it's our kind of out of jail card uh, this time as well, because technology essentially I was referring to a competition of the lack of thereof. And actually, technology today allow us to uh, accelerate competition in the system through the deployment or through the de- you know organic development of decentralized 
systems. Uh, so a decentralized system, essentially, it's, a, it's an any system that has any sort of purpose, whether it's to, you know, deliver goods or deliver services, or, or it could be a, just a public service uh, that is built on a technology that essentially decentralize it. Now, the, the fact itself that a certain service or product is delivered by on a decentralized technology essentially enables for more competition in the system because anybody can participate, anybody can go on that protocol and build a business, build an application on the protocol to serve the participants to the protocol. Uh, so you have on one side, you create an open system where anybody can participate. On the other side, you also create a system where every participant, whether they are entrepreneurs or not, regardless of their role on the platform, they participate of the value which is created on the platform. That's the biggest difference. So there are many examples, but let's take one. And I'm just throwing this out. Yeah. Power grids, right? Traditional grids to smart grids, where all of a sudden you're not taking from a centralized system, but actually you're generating power with solar or other type of things that might be installed on your rooftop. And when you have surplus, you're selling it back to the power company and therefore participating in the process. Is that an example of what you're talking about? Yeah, that's a great example, a very kind of, you know, a tr sort of a, a simple but, but effective example. Uh, I think a, a, an even uh, a slightly more complex, but I think very fitting example would be the decentralized version of a platform, say like AWS. Imagine AWS obviously is the largest uh, cloud computing service in the world. Uh, it's basically the uh, 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 crown jewel of the one of the most valuable companies in the world, which is Amazon. Imagine AWS on a decentralized service. We're all network. We're all users and providers of computing services. And just for the fact of being on that, participating on the network, participating on the platform, we participate of any value that is created on the platform, obviously on a, on a, on a pro rata basis, depending on, on, on what we contribute, whether it's, whether it's just usage, whether it's data, whether it's a certain type of application, uh, whether it's uh, computing power, whether it's uh, uh, disk drive space, etc., etc. These kind of platforms already exist. In fact, there is one. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not plugging anything. But there is. There is a platform uh, which is actually specifically uh, sort of a, uh, you know aimed to 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 represent a kind of a decentralized AWS. Uh, which is called Filecoin. It's a fairly large uh, operation. And if you kind of check it out, you will see what I mean by a decentralized version of AWS. These kind of platforms are, uh, uh, you know, being, you know, a, a sort of starting to, 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 to pop up in virtually any business, whether it's, you know, for example, video on demand. So there is, you know, a, a decentralized version of, for example, YouTube or Netflix. Uh, whether it's, uh, uh, it's virtually any, any major business is being sort of targeted by potential uh, uh, decentralized disruption. So, so in this example, you're looking as data as the currency, for instance. It could be the, the, the two-way flow of data. If I provide some value captured in digital data, that data then has an inherent value, which is then somehow tradable or transferable in a way where I'm not just paying for hosting my service, but actually giving something back that might be used, therefore will help subsidize you know, what, what, I'm, what I'm using? So absolutely. For example, another example, a real-world example, it's a, it's a browser. It's called Brave. Essentially, it's uh, imagine a decentralized version of Google Chrome. Uh, 
And actually, when you use uh, Brave, first of all, you have total control of your data and, and obviously your privacy, but also actually you get paid in, in uh, Brave tokens for using the, the platform. Um, so, so there is, uh, and, and by the way, Brave has been around now, I think, for four years. So we're not talking some kind of beta project. We're talking about projects that are up and running. Um, I, I strongly recommend check it out, download it, and see how it works. See how how it is different from Chrome, and you will get a glimpse a glimpse of what I mean by a decentralized version of something that is centralized. And, and of course, this is terrifying conversation for the AWSs and the Googles and the Facebooks of the world who have profiteered against you know the data that they've owned, controlled, managed, and sometimes sold illegally. But but it, it's also you know a liberalization for our users, users at all levels, community level, individual level, and, and it speaks to what does appear to be going on, or at least the opportunity, which is decentralized in a way which meets your local, um, provincial requirements, whatever they may be, whether it's power, uh, whether it's data, whether it's access to, you know, um, food, um, it, it's, it's really kind of changing and turning the model on its head sticking to the principles of capitalism, but not allowing it to be controlled by central powers. Absolutely. Uh, one of the perhaps potentially most more transformative example of uh, a decentralized platform would be a platform that essentially um, uh, um, used for, uh, to register property rights. Mm -hmm. So property rights obviously is something that is uh, at the core of our uh, societies um, is something that also is at the core of the, uh, you know, the stakeholder society. In other words, there is plenty of uh, economic uh, history showing that a society that has a robust uh, property laws also has a kind of robust uh, fundamentals and robust sort of ability to generate growth and productivity and prosperity. So today we can manage virtually any type of property right, rights on decentralized ledger, decentralized ledger technology. I'm sure most of the listeners may have heard about NFTs. NFTs essentially are... A, what does that stand for? Non-fungible non -fungible tokens. These are digital objects that essentially are encrypted and therefore are immutable, uh, that essentially ensh would enshrine anything from the, the title deed of a piece of land uh, to uh, to an object, to uh, you know an identity, to uh, for example certain uh, rights. For example, for you know there is a fascinating idea about talking about for one of the you know bigger problem in in uh, in advanced societies uh, student credit. Mm. So there is a possibility through this technology for students essentially to obtain credit. Uh, 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 on a peer-to-peer -peer basis, so without having to go to sort of uh, specific institutions, credit that would then be repaid throughout their working life, throughout their sort of kind of productive life, um, and therefore that you know that, that would would unlock. So the essentially the, the 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 revision of the way we manage, create, and manage property rights is probably the most transformative use of uh, a technology that I can think of today. Because don't forget that uh, a, a, you know, sound property is also 
contiguous to credit mm. because the moment that there is the the title the, the let's say again let's take a, a piece of land in in an emerging market there is maybe there is a family who has been uh, tending to this land for generations if they have a secure firm uh, title on the land a, a, a title that is essentially can be is transparent and every it's immutable cannot be changed cannot be taken away cannot be corrupted uh, they can obtain credit on in a very easy way on a peer-to-peer basis anywhere in the world they can they can obtain almost instant credit on the piece of land and therefore you can imagine sort of the kind of the flywheel effect mm. the credit would generate w- where where it's needed the most, yeah. where where credit doesn't flow. Yeah, I want I want to I want to make sure that that's really made clear to the listeners because I think what you're saying is oftentimes one of the biz- biggest barriers to advancement, economic advancement, is access to credit. You've got lots of money, you've got big assets, you have no problem getting credit. Um, if you are a woman entrepreneur in Indonesia, good luck. You know there are fewer you know resources available to you for that. So if you could micro this, if you could blockchain it, if everybody could get just a small piece of it, it would then immediately establish, you know, the ability to then access credit, and then you could gain some ground, right? Actually, the way I was, I, I became familiar with this technology was really because of credit. I was lucky enough to be involved uh, with with a team of fantastic people on a on a micro credit project, and and I came to learn uh, how micro credit is at the heart really could be the most transformative microcredit done right, again, done with the right technology and in the right way can be at, at the heart of the transformation of society. My, I always say that microenterprises are the dark matter mm. of the global economy. If you look at countries like India, if you look at countries like Indonesia, microenterprises represent the vast majority of employed, of employment. They represent large chunks of the the GDP of the country. So the ability to turbocharge micro enterprises to credit, I think, could be the most transformative, uh, uh, you know, single single uh, uh, change mm. that we could that we could implement. And and just like you're talking about new browser technologies that localize and take things away from Google Chrome or you know local hosting services that move away from Amazon Web Services. Of course the organizations that were threatened by this idea of microcredit are banks, the big established banks, many of whom owe their existence to governments and government handouts from the very beginning. So, and and they oftentimes argue, well, it's not really, you know, the issue of, of providing uh, the credit to people who are in rural areas or don't have a lot of money. It's, it's the cost to serve is what they say, right? It's too expensive for us to do this. Well, hello, FinTech, you know, a whole new generation of startups have come in to solve that problem. In the telecommunications world, it was called the last mile problem, right? Getting it from from the you know center from the curb to the house. Well, that's what fintech appears to be doing now with credit. Is there any reason why banks should resist this? <laughs> I wish people could see your expression on your face. I love it. Go, go. No, well, there is the main reason is obviously if they want to retain their their uh, you know their economic and 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 political power. Obviously, they have uh, many reasons to resist this. Uh, the problem is that, as I said, uh, at the end of the day, we are moving to decentralization. It, it, to me, it's just a trend cannot be stopped. I would just, however, be in favor of, uh, uh, you know, 
using the trend as opposite as opposite to just be be passive using the trend to address the problems that we have in society and, and to avoid you know possibly dystopian uh, 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 obstacles dystopian sort of uh, uh, faces along the way because one thing which we haven't said we haven't said about income inequality is that if you look at history which is something unfortunately I tend to do a lot um, income inequality has a way to breed authoritarian solutions mm. and again if whether it's you know the history of rome uh, or or the east more recent history we always see that the moment that there is a you know a significant part of the population that becomes uh unhappy and 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 and, and angry that breeds uh first a sort of kind of populist political offer and then eventually authoritarian regimes so so we're back to government if the best thing government could do would be not to raise debt, increase debt, and continue to spend money on large projects or subsidizing uh, those that don't have, perhaps the best thing they could do is focus on decentralizing by opening up the market to new competitors that have new innovative technologies that in some ways do disrupt and threaten you know, the existing institutions, but at the same time promise to expand the benefits to a greater number of people, thereby end-rounding end rounding any um, political or social fallout. Absolutely, I mean, a dollar or, or, or a euro can be spent in any variety of ways. Uh, I'm not advocating here that it should not be spent. Uh, what I'm saying is that it should be really laser focused spent to enable uh, technology, enable new enterprises, enable new small businesses, essentially do take all those actions, which by the way, are not only financial in nature, that may favor the development of private uh, 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 initiative, especially again on a micro level, that I think would be the best use of money, and obviously some a, a healthy degree of the regulation, which is unfortunately we are seeing exactly the opposite. We are seeing an increase in the in the in the regulation and and essentially government controls and government sort of uh, um, you know uh, intervention into the economy, which again it concerns me because. Looking at history, the more, the more, the bigger is the government, the more the 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 political unintended consequences tends to be tend to be away from 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 uh, civil liberties. Mm. I recently interviewed uh, Basuki Shastri, who's written the book "Has Asia Lost It," and one of his primary contentions is that there's a a disconnect which is growing across Asia, in fact, in many parts of the world, between the very senior octogenarian leaders, um, many of whom are in fact in their 80s, and the young up and coming, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, generations that want to see change, want to have equal access, want to have upward mobility, but are being constrained by the systems that allowed us to get from where we were to where we are today. Um, to what degree, and this is the, the most sensitive part of this whole equation, you know, to break that relationship between the old guard and, and the private sector and those institutions that have been founded on this ideas of making urge, uh, version one capitalism work means a sea change of thinking in order to kind of address and open up to the to the new technologies available to us. If we look at history, we see that change 
social change is often uh, brought by crisis. Mm -hmm. I mean, anybody who's uh, in the kind of change management business, they know that the first rule is to create a crisis because that's, you know, we are essentially, we are creature of habits. Humans are creature of habits. We are essentially motivated by either sloth, fear, or greed. Mm -hmm. That's essentially are the three. It's, it's got to be any mix of these three. Um, in absence of this, we just, we just don't like to change. So my, my answer to your question is that I'm afraid, of course, you know, crisis is brewing, and, and I think it could get, you know, even, even, even worse than what it is today, but I'm afraid that it's gonna take a little bit of crisis to, um, you know, to, to trigger and, and motivate the kind of change that you, that you, conf that you kind of envision. And is this crisis, this pandemic, what we needed at the right time? Is it enough? Or do we need to basically, you know, devolve into a Myanmar situation, civil unrest, people taking to the streets, demanding rights? I think, uh, as always, uh, a crisis is a th terrible thing to waste. And I think we should use COVID to, uh, first and foremost, to, to get clear. And I think, you know, this kind of conversations, I think, could be contribute to, to clarity and, and that's surely my hope uh, to get clear on what to do and then start to uh, uh, to brew the kind of discourse and the kind of action which then leads, leads to change. As far as COVID, uh, one of the scenarios that I think may uh, uh, sort of facilitate change, although sometimes in a, in a you know, perhaps traumatic way, is the fact that we may start to see uh, growing inflation. And inflation is essentially a tax on the poor. So if you are obviously, if you are a relatively wealthy uh, individual or family in a relatively wealthy society, you may not really feel that so much. But instead, if you are, in, you are in a less wealthy or emerging uh, society, then inflation is gonna bite and chances are it's going to also uh, trigger economic and political demand for political change mm -hmm. so so in a way yes we may be on a we are probably on a path to change again my hope is that we get in front of it and we try to uh to ride the change so not to to make this change too traumatic but but whether born by crisis or by thoughtful planning uh you know half rate or 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 you know incremental change will not get us there uh, probably not. Again, also change is a bit of a step function. It's seldom meaningful change is incremental. Um, again, I, I, looking at his as a scholar of history, you can see that we, we'll, as a species, we always find a way. We always find, you know, the kind, we always kind of make the the leap, if you want, the, the 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 quantum leap that is necessary to take us to the next level. Mm. Obviously, my concern. Also looking at history is that often this quantum leap is um, associated with very significant collateral damage, a very significant human misery. So obviously my hope is that, you know, in 2021, we know a little bit better than to wait for this kind of really uh, painful collateral damage uh, to, 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 you know, to bite the bullet and, and take it to the next level. My hope is that we can, again, we can, we can manage a little bit better as a society, again, identify the problem, discuss about the solution, in the, identify the root causes, I think is also very important. You can't really understand the problem unless you understand where it's coming from. Discuss, have a discussion about the solutions, possible solution, open and civilized and, 
as much as possible and then take action. Mm. I think that that should be the that should be the process. And, and as a government, to avoid the temptation to fall back into old methods of solving old world problems, we're in a new paradigm and in a new kind of set of, of challenges, um, whether we step up now, and, and of course, climate change, we haven't even discussed that, is out there just rattling around. Uh, we're going to get you one way or the other. So are you prepared to make the changes required at the level required in order to make sure that you know more people have access to more of what's good and meaningful. Yes, I think uh, obviously government, uh, sadly, uh, sadly because I wish it was different, but clearly government is often uh, more part of the problem than part of the solution. And the reality is very simple. It's just human nature. Obviously, the, the government is a constituency who has very, very specific uh, uh, sort of set of interest. And uh, the, obviously for them, for government, the more that that, the better. That is the currency of consensus. That is essentially the currency of getting getting into office, staying into office rather, <laughs> getting voted back into office. So we should be realistic about how much government can do. Uh, of course, in certain countries, in certain systems, citizens and, and, and uh, voters can, uh, you know, nudge government on the right direction, let me put it this way. Uh, but again, I think we should be realistic about what government can do. I think this is more about individual action and, and, and sort of getting organized around strong ideas, which then, you know, will kind of float to the surface and, and, uh, and then, uh, you know, take us to the other side. In, in some ways, um, in your assessment, do you believe that Asia, or at least certain markets in Asia, are better attuned to these issues than, let's say, more um, older, older uh, economies with more entrenched interests? In other words, by virtue of, n of being relatively new countries, uh, independence within the last 50 or 60 years, is there an opportunity to push past these issues, make the changes necessary faster than the West? I definitely think so. Someone said that demography is history and it's destiny, sorry, demography is destiny. And therefore, Asia and other parts of the world being much demographically younger than sort of kind of Europe for sure, but also the US to an extent, they are better positioned to, uh, you know, to, 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 to navigate this process, if anything, because, for example, in Asia, given the fact that, again, the technology is going to play a, a, a pivotal role, a central role, in, in, in change, as always is the case in the history of our species, I believe that uh, a, younger, a younger population will be, other things being equal, favored in making those changes as opposite to a, to a less young population. Pietro, always fascinating, always a pleasure. Let's keep going on this topic. There's so much more to talk about. That was part two of my conversation with Singapore-based economist and investment strategist Pietro Ventani. Clearly, there's no simple solution to what ails our capitalist system. In fact, some argue there's no ailment to begin with. All the system needs is time to work things out. Capitalism, they say, is inherently self-correcting. But that's like saying every disease should be treated like the common cold. Sooner or later, the body rebels. If a healthy global economy is what we're after, Pietro says that no long-term good will be served by ramping up public debt. Yet time and again, government spending has served as the expedient solution to appease the masses. The irony of the past five decades of economic growth is that it's come hand-in-hand hand with the decline in public services. For the wealthy, it's no big deal. Don't like the local public school? Send your kid to private school. 
not happy with the waiting lines at public hospitals, not to worry, you can pay out of pocket for private care. Businesses, from banks to insurers to tech companies and law firms, embrace the path we're on. Millions of service sector jobs worldwide have been created in recent years to cater to the needs of consumers who can't get what they want from the public sector. You see where I'm going, right? That incremental dollar earned by someone who is poor versus those who are rich matters a lot more. Which brings us to Pietro's second biggest concern, income inequality. And this is where the Mobius loop folds in on itself. The solution in many countries appears to be, wait for it, more public spending, partly to create jobs and partly to help subsidize families left behind. It's not the kind of solution that true capitalists pine for. Pietro isn't calling for economic revolution, but he is saying that unless governments and the private sector align to address these two major problems, brace for the kind of populist insurrection that gave birth to things like the American independence movement and communist revolution. They can do so by tapping into technologies that by their very nature even the playing field, open the markets to equal participation, and disintermediate the institutions that have grown complacent and self-interested. I think Scott Pierre in a recent Harvard Business Review article said it best when he wrote that all the economists and historians reviewed for his article agreed that, and I quote, the single most important step is re-empowering governments, whether that means more effective regulation, progressive taxation, wealth taxes, or other measures. Failing that, he adds, it's up to, and I quote again, purpose-driven executives who manage to create value for multiple stakeholders, including, yes, shareholders, without rapacious extraction, exploitation, or environmental damage. Perhaps, just perhaps, it's a little bit of both. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here on Inside Asia. Please share our program with friends and colleagues. We're nearly 180 episodes in, and all our conversations are available free of charge. All you need to do is subscribe by searching for Inside Asia wherever you get your podcasts. Each week, we introduce a new topic or trend that shows how corporate purpose, sustainability, and 21st century thinking are stacking up to guide Asia's future. Prefer reading to listening? Then subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter. Visit us at www.insideasiaadvisors.com. Leave your name and email address and start receiving weekly updates that highlight key points from our discussion, provide links to additional insights and articles, and reference earlier podcasts on related subjects. As always, we thank you for listening.